Greetings, listeners in listener land. Welcome to St. Louis in Tune with Arnold Stricker and Mark Langston, where we size up current and historic events involving people, places, and things in areas such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, health, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports. We originate from and connect the Gateway City to our national and international affairs and lives. If I mention a couple names to you, Tuskegee Airmen, Mm -hmm. Harry S. Truman. Huh? Yeah. Missouri guy. Is there a linkage there? I'm not as big of a history buff as I should be, so I would not know. We have a history buff on because if it wasn't for this gentleman's father, there may not be the Tuskegee Airmen. Ooh. And his grandmother was a Harlem Renaissance poet. Aw. And we're going to be talking to Chauncey Spencer. Chauncey, how are you? I'm fine. Thank you for having me on. I, I am glad that you're able to talk to us. Your dad was one of the civil rights pioneers who doesn't get a lot of recognition, and we're going to peel back the onion on that today because you have a lot of information that everybody out there needs to know, and I appreciate you coming on. So first of all, Chauncey, tell us a little bit about you because you have an educational service and, and things you do, and then we'll dig into your dad. But thank you. I have the Chauncey Spencer Educational Services, and it is to go into the schools and into the auditorium to teach people about part of American aviation history that's not necessarily in our standard curriculums within our schools. And that happens to to deal with a lot of African-American aviators and the, the fact that we had dual kinds of situations going on. Yes, we did. At one time, we had a separate Air Force that the, I'm sorry, a separate Army Air Corps, and the military was separated as well by race. And the Army Air Corps at that time, back during World War II and prior to, they didn't allow African Americans to play a part in aviation as pilots or any other fields in aviation. And because of people like the Tuskegee Airmen, we proved to America that the color of your skin your gender has nothing to do with flying an airplane. And the Tuskegee Airmen were a group that they were very solid in what they did. They were very strong as far as, and I think one of their pilots, and I can't remember his name, had, I want to say, the most kills of fighter pilots. You correct me if I'm wrong. What are they really known for those people who may not know what the Tuskegee Airmen actually did? To put a name with it, his name was Lee Archer, and he was the eighth. Of the Tuskegee Airmen, he shot down five airplanes, making him an ace. Many other Tuskegee Airmen shot down many airplanes, but he shot down the most airplanes within one day. Now take us back a little bit of history prior to this. So we're going back to where your dad, even before that, your dad went to Chicago, and there was an airfield there, and there was training going on about aviation. But go back even farther into his childhood where he why did he get this bug to be an avian when he was 11 years old in the city of lynchburg virginia he saw his first airplane flying over the skies of lynchburg virginia where he was bitten by the aviation bug and he had a dream to become to reality to be a pilot but he went to the airport there in lynchburg which was then preston Glen airport and they told him and his father that they don't teach color to fly because they don't have the intelligence and it was 16 years later on his flight back from a cross-country trip to Washington and then on to New York that they landed at that very airport to prove that blacks could fly 
and he wanted to make a point in his hometown. I, I bet he had a big smile on his face when he landed there. <laughs> I, I can imagine that, here you go, I'm in your face on this. You said I couldn't do it, and, and here I am. And that flight originated in Chicago at a field where there was aviation going on quite a bit in the Chicagoland area. Yes, it actually started with a group called the Challenger Aero Group, and they were in Robbins, Illinois. They were led by then John Robinson, who ended up creating the first Air Force for Haley Selassie in Ethiopia, and Cornelius Coffee in Chicago, who created the Coffee School of Aeronautics, who trained 200 of the 450 fighter pilots that went to Berlin and back, better known as the Red Tails. Wow. And that's actually where the first female black pilots got their licenses, too, in training, correct? Correct. That's where the majority of the instructors, because it was segregated, so you had to have black instructors to train black pilots, and the whole administration had to be black. So Chicago was the founding location of the majority of African-Americans in aviation, and also they were trained at Curtis Wright Flight School for one one year, one class, but they were trained at nighttime because of segregation, and the white students at that school boycotted the next term to where they couldn't go back to have another uh, class to graduate, but Coffee graduated from that school as a valedictorian, and they certified his school as an official flight school so he could continue to train not only African-Americans and not only men, but all races and all genders. He didn't segregate, nor did he discriminate when it came to training uh, pilots in Chicago. Now, let me ask you this. Go back uh, a little bit. I want to continue this thought, but your dad, he travels with Dale White in 1939 from Chicago to Washington, D.C., and he did a stop in Lynchburg, as you mentioned, and Mm -hmm. they get out of the plane— And what was their intention when they got to D.C.? Their intention was to encourage, at that time, Howard University. It was called a 10-city tour. They left Chicago on Harlem Field on 87th Street and Harlem Avenue, which is now Oakland, Illinois. Back then it was Chicago. And the two pilots selected were Chauncey Spencer and Dale White. Their contact in Washington was Edgar Brown. He was a lobbyist for their organization called the National Airmen Association of America. And one of the stops there, as I said, was Howard University. And Governor Dwight Green in Illinois made contact for them to have two senators, Edward Dirksen and James Slattery from Illinois, to meet them in Washington. When they landed at the airport in Washington, there's a little trolley car that goes underground to the congressional building. And Edgar Brown met Dale White and Chauncey Spencer there and took them into the congressional building. And there was a senator standing there waiting to take the trolley car out to the airport, and his name was Harry S. Truman. Truman knew Edgar Brown and said, good morning, Edgar, who are your two friends here? And Edgar said, well, they're trying to get into the Army Air Corps. So Senator Truman says, well, why don't they join? Are they citizens? And Chauncey Sr. said, yes, sir, we're citizens. It seems to be for whites only. And so Senator Truman then turned to Edgar and said, Edgar, how about if I come out there around 3 o'clock and take a look at their airplane? And they all agreed that that would be true. My father calls me Pop. I'm named after him, but he said I look like his father. And he said, Pop, we didn't think they were coming out there. So we got out there at 315. And sure enough, Truman was there with four of his administrative assistants at 3 o'clock. And when Chauncey and Dale got there, Truman said, you mean to tell me you flew this thing I'm looking at from Chicago to Washington? 
And Chauncey Sr. said, yes, sir, we did. Can we take you for a flight? And immediately Truman said, no, you can't take me for a flight. But if you got guts enough to fly this thing I'm looking at from Chicago to Washington, I got guts enough to find out why you can't become part of the United States Army Air Corps. So it was Truman that made it all possible because he's the legislator. And Truman joined in with Eleanor Roosevelt. You have to remember, he was a junior senator. So he wanted to try to get a good position with the president at that time, Roosevelt, which we know later on he became the vice president. So it was those moves to make him more familiar with Roosevelt and his administration than Roosevelt to be familiar with him. So when people ask me, how did all of that come? Was it your father? It wasn't my father. My father in a group out of Chicago called the National Airmen Association of America had a pledge that it would not be an I, but it would be we. And they would fail as we, and they would succeed as we. So I have to tell the story as my father taught it to me. If it's not for, if it's not for legislators, no laws are changed in America. So it was because of Senator Truman and his position that made it possible. And we know later on in 1948, under Executive Order 9981, Truman desegregates the military and creates the United States Air Force. But prior to that, in 1946, he created a committee to look into integration in the military. His science was that if the military can be integrated, then later our communities could be integrated, which we know that he was. <laughs> love it. He was not ahead of his time. He was just thinking what, what I would call like a normal person should. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Now, I, w- I want you to, w- w- you told that story. That's a great story it because is. people here in Missouri, show me, yeah. and and President Truman's library is up in Independence. They just had a big $25 million mm-hmm. renovation. Oh, wow. And I'd like to get up there because I want to see if he has information about this, what you just told us up there. But I want you to stop and go back from when Senator Truman met with your father and, and Dale White and then... There's a formation of the Tuskegee Airmen Group, correct? Yes, if I may say, before the Tuskegee Airmen, it was the Civil Pilot Training Program. Okay. So their contact between Dale White and Chauncey Spencer with Truman was to encourage Congress to appropriate funding for the black colleges in the South, and there were six of those selected, and Tuskegee Institute was one of them, but there was not one. There was one non-university which was the Coffee School of Aeronautics in Chicago, and that was the first one that was selected because Coffee had all of the instructors that they would need to go to Tuskegee Army Airfield. And was Bessie Coleman and Willa Brown some of the instructors up there? No, Willa Brown, yes. Bessie Coleman, no. Bessie Coleman died in an airplane accident in Jacksonville, Florida, in April of 1926. But Bessie Coleman was the cornerstone for black along with Eugene Bullard, who was the first African-American fighter pilot who flew with the Lafayette Escadrille in World War I. So because of Bessie Coleman leaving Texas and going to Chicago and then getting the support of the Chicago Defender by way of Robert Abbott, who was the first African-American millionaire in Chicago, is how she got to go to France. And in 1921, she came back with a pilot license, making her the first African-American woman to have a pilot license. Now, Willa Brown was a graduate of Northwestern University with a master's degree in business administration, and she coined the champion of being the first African-American woman to receive a private pilot license in America. And she trained some of the Tuskegee Airmen, right? 
She did. She was married to coffee. Prior to that, John Robinson and Cornelius Coffee were visiting a Walgreens drugstore in Chicago where they Willa Brown when she was a clerk while she was working her way through college. Now, I, I don't think very many people know that that couple trained Tuskegee Airmen, let alone, number one, that a woman helped train some Tuskegee Airmen <laughs> that trained even any man right. to fly an airplane. You know, that I don't think very many people knew. No. I was like, are you kidding me? Yeah, and there was more than Willa Brown, I add. There was Marie St. Clair. There were at least seven women in that group. There were also instructors. Janet Bragg is the first African-American woman to receive a pilot license and an instructor's rating. And she also came from Chicago, and she was part of that same group. That's just incredible. And what you do with all this information that you just discussed with us, you take around, you drive it around. You have a like a museum on wheels. I do. I have a 1937 Pierce Arrow trailer that's been totally restored to its original, and it's uh, a mobile classroom, theater, and museum, and it's called African Americans in Aviation Traveling Museum. It was put together in August of 2020, and it went on a 17-state cross-country tour, and the main theme was the March on Washington 57 years after Martin Luther King's speech, I Have a Dream, and it went to Washington. It visited the Lincoln Center. They allowed the trailer to get past the security to picture there, and then it continued on to Moton Field where primary training for the Tuskegee Airmen was and continued on through to another 16. And that was the first tour. So far, the trailer has traveled a little more than 21,000 miles. We've covered 37 states, 47 major cities in the last two and a half years. So how was the response to your little tours that you had? And This is a, a, a two-pronged question. And how did people get in contact with you to have you stop at their particular location? Well, question one, it was very well welcomed, and they were hungry for the information, as you are, to be surprised that there's so much important American history that's not included in general public information. And then your question two was again? It was, how did people find out about getting you to come to their location, whether it be at a school or at a a faith-based institution or a university or something like that? Through advertisements. So we're a nonprofit and I'm powered through the National College Resources Foundation, located in Diamond Bar, California. We've been a nonprofit for 23-plus years, and it was through advertisement. That first trip, NBC followed me through my trip, so that gave me a lot of media coverage, and then all the other networks uh, followed suit, with. and then we do our own advertisement. One of our nonprofit arms is Black College Expos, so we go around and put on Black College and Latino Expos all over the United States, and those historically black and brown colleges. And so that's how we get a lot of audience uh, that people then want to know, will you come to my school, will you come to my church, will you come to my event? And these are how things are happening. Now, uh, Chauncey, is that website ces-ii.com? Yes, it is. Okay, so folks, I'm going to give that to you again, ces-ii.com, and you can get information on uh, Chauncey Spencer Educational Services, LLC, and there's information there about how to contact him to maybe have him come to your place. So how often did you do that? Are you going to do this? Or what are your plans for this summer? Do you travel in the summertime or you travel in the wintertime? You probably, being out in Southern California, you want to get away from there in the summertime, right? 
Yeah, I've done it. We've been we have we've been nonstop through August of 2020. I just returned back from Pima Air and Space Museum in Tucson, Arizona, which has been my last trip. But I'm scheduled through uh, 2023 in different events. One of the events will be in Seattle this year. And then also Houston, Texas, again for the third time. Dallas will be in Detroit on the 24th of September at Wayne State University, putting on the Black College Expo in Aviation and Aerospace. And I'll be bringing uh, young people in. This time I'm going to bring a young man in from Chicago who attends Dunbar High School. And he's 16. He just got his motorized glider pilot license. And they purchased, the school has purchased a plane, and he'll fly that plane into Wayne State area, into Detroit City Airport for this event to show young people that are people that look just like them, their ages, that are doing these things, and there's no reason why they can't. Now, I saw on your website where you really encourage a lot of STEM, and as that relates to especially to aviation and a lot of the youngsters involved, is that kind of the program like you're talking about at Dunbar? It is. It's a STEAM program, so it includes science, technology, engineering, art, aviation, and math. We did start it out as STEM, but we know we've added another acronym, which is the A, so we call it STEAM now. And that's one of the one of the uh, reasons that I do champion that is because anything that you want to do in America, you're going to need STEAM in the background. That has to be the basis of any decent living and and. Pretty much every occupation is going to require at least one of those, if not all of those, depending on how far you want to go into the sciences. So is Dunbar set up to have an aviation, my words now, extracurricular activity? Because I saw kids marching. I saw them go to an aviation field. They were participating in some, what do they call, the, you're learning to fly, those kind of simulators. Right, simulators. simulators. And is that part of the Dunbar program, or is that something special that happens in the summertime that you have been involved with? No, that's something that goes year-round. It's led by Umberto Rico, who's an FAA inspector there in Chicago, and, he vol- and he's also a flight instructor. And he volunteers his time three days. They do have motion simulators. They have a Redbird and a couple other ones there at the school. And then they also tear down and put together airplanes. And Umberto Rico bought Cornelius Coffee's fleet of airplanes. He owns all five of his airplanes. Wow. And so the students have been rebuilding the airplane, wow. and, they're, and they have flown one of his airplanes. Neat. And so they have motorized gliders as well as fixed-wing airplanes, the Piper Cub, Cherokee, and things of that sort. And so that's the school that's doing it mainly there in Chicago. But Wendell Phillips High School back in 1941 had an aviation program that was created by Cordius Coffee. And so that would be the first. And as a matter of fact, those students, black and brown, in 1941, before the Tuskegee Airmen got their wings in March the 7th of 1942, were already flying airplanes. That's why it's important for me to continue to do what I do, to make people understand, though the Tuskegee Airmen deserve all the respect, they were not the first. And we want to make sure that when we write this book, we don't start in Chapter 3, that we start with Chapter 1. That's why I go all the way back to 1917 with Eugene Bullard flying with the Lafayette uh, Escadrille and then make sure that Bessie Coleman is mentioned. Now, I do a test with the kids, and I'll ask them, I'll say, how many people have ever heard of Bessie Coleman? Very few. And then I'll ask them, how many people have ever heard of a Mee Earhart? And everybody raised their hand, black, brown, green, or yellow. And that's why I know that there's a need for what I'm doing because Bessie Coleman got her pilot license two years before me Earhart did. That's right. Uh, not to discredit Amelia Earhart wow. and make more credit for Bessie Coleman, 
But when we're talking about history, each one of our stories are just as important as the next, and they all deserve to have a voice. You say it. That is exactly <laughs> what needs to be said, and yeah. I appreciate that. Good it man. seems like, and I'm going to say this, it seems like the only history that we ever learned, that I learned, uh-huh. was, I'm going to say this, white history. All right, cut it out. And <laughs> Bessie Coleman got her license before Amelia Earhart. She should be recognized. Amen. Why not? Well, can I say this to you? Kudos to you. Better coming from you than me, but you're absolutely correct. But because Truman told my father when he met, my father said, well, sir, it seems to be for whites only. And Truman immediately interrupted him and said, don't talk about race. Talk about citizenship. Yeah. And every citizen in this country is entitled to the same rights. Though we, don't, but though we can't fool ourselves and pretend mm. that race doesn't play a part, but it does. But I think the more that we concentrate on the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and the rights of each and every individual in America, oh. then race really doesn't have a lot to do with it. It's more about opportunity. You're giving, you're giving me goosebumps. Honestly, you are. You are. You're giving me good. It is so true. And why that is such a hard thing to get across to people, I'm still uh, just flabbergasted by it. But so true. St. Louis Intune strives to bring you informative, useful, and reflective stories and interviews about current and historic issues and events that involve people, places, and things. Our topics cover a wide range such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, health, history, housing, humor, justice, and even sports. And that's just to name a few. While St. Louis In Tune originates from the Gateway City and covers local topics, we connect to what is going on nationally as well. If you enjoy what you hear, please take time and like and share and subscribe to this show and listen to other previous shows that can be found on our website, stlintune.com. That's stlintune.com. Or on your favorite podcast platform, that's stlintune.com. stlintune.com. And if you've got an idea that you'd like for us to examine a little deeper, let us know by dropping us a note at stlintune at gmail.com. That's stlintune at gmail.com. St. Louis in Tune, heard Monday through Friday on the usradionetwork.com and many great radio stations around the U.S. and, of course, right here in St. Louis. Our website, again, is stlintune.com. We want to hear from you, stlintune.com. Welcome back to St. Louis in Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston. We are having a conversation with Chauncey Spencer. His father was Chauncey Spencer Sr., who was a African-American aviator, very instrumental in the civil rights movement in this aspect that he was a pivotal person in the integration of the armed forces, specifically the U.S. Army Air Force. And he also has a very famous grandmother who we're going to get to in, in a few moments. Chauncey, how much did your father talk to you about all this or were you soaking all this up as you grew up? Or I want to know that because many times as kids, you're just growing up and you go, oh, yeah, my dad does this or, or my mom does this or my grandparents do this. And you really don't get the moment unless the moment is impressed upon you by those individuals. How did it happen in your life? It was in a circle of growing up, being in the, the arena 
of movers and shakers that came to our home and that we couldn't help but learn. And then as we got older, there's eight of us in the family, four boys and four girls, and we took our turns taking our father to different universities, Oxford, Yale, any university that you want to mention, we've been there. And my father would be on stage and we'd be in the audience and we'd listen to his presentations. And after a while, we could do his presentations. We knew what joke he was going to say next and this and that. So myself, out of all of the brothers and sisters, sort of took it on as part of my life. And when my father passed away in 2002, I noticed that people like him were being erased from history, and they were no longer being talked about. They would talk about themselves, and they wouldn't talk about the shoulders that they stand on. And I thought that that was improper, and it shouldn't happen. And so I took on the, uh, the mission of creating a traveling museum, which we have now, And not only do I speak on my father, as you'll see, I speak on people before him because they had heroes. And my father always talked about, don't talk about yourself, talk about those who made it possible for yourself. And so I I use that rule of thumb. And the other one is when they created the organization, they wouldn't be an I, they would be a we. And so it would always be inclusive. And with that being said, my father's book, Who is Chauncey Spencer, was published by the Broadside Press in Detroit in 1975, being the first book written on African-Americans in aviation. And there's, though you've already said that he was instrumental in the integration of the Army Air Corps and later the United States Air Force and every other branch of the military. Because my father worked for the Inspector General's office, and he was assigned as an undercover agent posing as an instrument mechanic, which he was hired at Patterson Field, later Wright Patterson as the first African-American instrument mechanic. So he knew that field. And when they sent him down to Tuskegee, uh, Army Airfield in 1942, he gathered information to report back to Judge Hastings, who then reported to Colonel Estabrook, who later became General Estabrook, in charge of Air Material Command at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. It is so important that these stories are not lost. And you made a yes. great point that we stand on the shoulders of people who have gone before us, and many times it's like history doesn't happen unless it happens in our lifetime or unless we were involved. And I know some people, this is a personal comment, that in businesses sometimes somebody who comes in new in a business might say, well, that didn't work because I wasn't here. And now we're doing everything yeah. new. Yeah. What you are doing is really laying some firm foundation and solidifying that foundation that's already been there, mm-hmm. but you're reminding people that, hey, you wouldn't be where you are unless this had happened. And I greatly appreciate that. I greatly appreciate that you take time to go around, and you've oh, taken yeah. the mantle of this on for your family, and you do what you do each and every year. Yeah. Your dad would be— May I add on to, may, may I add on to that? And since we're making personal comments, I'm going to make one. I gave the Tuskegee Airmen organization a chance to do this, and it wouldn't happen. I was the past president of the Central Region for the Tuskegee Airmen Incorporated from 2008 to 2010, and I started telling them, I said, when we're talking about our own organization, we should reach back and talk about James Vanning, the first Mm -hmm. African-American to receive a pilot license in America in 1926, because people have to realize we didn't have a Commerce of Aviation until 1926, and it was called the CAA, or the Civilian Aviation Administration. We know that in 1960, President Kennedy claimed it, uh, changed it to the FAA, or Federal Aviation oh. Administration. But we have to, they have to realize, from what I'm trying to tell them, that we have to go all the way back to Eugene Bullard. And right. it wasn't until it was popular that they put a new statue up 
in Paris on Eugene Bullard that all of a sudden Eugene Bullard was important. But all the years that I was on the board telling them that this is, it was ignored. And so I'm not discrediting the Tuskegee Airmen. I'm just facting the fact that I've given them a chance for over 20 years to do this and it's not being done. So I don't include, I don't exclude the Tuskegee Airmen in my story, as you know, but I make them into Chapter 3 because we have to go World War One with Eugene Bullard, General Aviation with Bessie Coleman, James Banning that opened the doors by being the first African-American in America to receive an instructor training and a pilot license, on to John Robinson in the 1930s that fought with the Spanish conflict between the communists and the fascists between Mussolini and Haley Selassie or Italy and Ethiopia, and then we get into World War II with the Tuskegee Airmen. So that's how many layers that need to be covered in order for the onion to be whole. Yeah, mention Eugene Bullard a little bit more for listeners because they may not be familiar with him. He was not accepted here, very much like a lot of black entrepreneurs, entertainers, business people, Mm -hmm. and they ended up going to Europe, and he was accepted in France. I believe he was in the French Air Force or something like that. Mm. Talk about him a little bit, if you would. So Eugene Bullard came from Columbus, Georgia. He was one of nine brothers. His father taught all his brothers, how, all his sons, how to read by using the Bible. And they all, he also told his sons, if you ever have to leave America, Europe is the place to go because they don't judge you by the color of your skin. They judge you by your conduct and your character. Mm-hmm. And so the Ku Klux Klan firebombed their house. Oh he was 16 years old, and he ran for his life, and he ended up hitchhiking his way to Norfolk, Virginia, got on a steam liner, and they ended up in Ireland where he was a stowaway. They put him off in Ireland. And he read in the paper where they were hiring laborers in France to put on a circuit. And he joined in to get to Paris. And when he got to Paris, he deflected, became a lightweight boxer, a champion boxer. And then in 1914, he had befriended many French. And they said they changed his middle name from James to Jacques. And they said, Jacques, why don't you join with us? And Jacques joined with the French Army and then had an opportunity to become an aviator. And so he stayed there in France, married a countess, had two daughters opened up a jazz nightclub. He was a a jazz drummer. And people like Langston Hughes from the Harlem Renaissance and Dorothy Dandridge, they worked there at his club washing dishes and entertaining before they came the famous people that they are. He then uh, spoke fluent German and French. And during his nightclub times, the Germans between World War I and World War II would drink and get loose lips and start talking about things they're going to do to the French. And Bullard worked for the French underground, which they didn't know. And he turned in the evidence and the intelligence to the people there in the French underground. And the Germans figured it out. They came looking for him. So the French got him out of France and got him to New York, where he lives in Harlem, and got a job as an elevator operator at the RCA building at the Rockefeller Center. And he took Mr. Rockefeller up and down the elevator. Finally, Mr. Rockefeller had a conversation and found out that he was famous. And then in 1959, 1960, he was on the Today. Charles de Gaulle was looking for him. He passed away in 61. And Charles de Gaulle came to Flushing's, New York, where he's buried with the French in his uniform and put a reef on his grave every year that Charles de Gaulle was alive. That's wonderful. You know, that... That That's, again. What a great. That again is information piece of history. That that is mm-hmm. lost unless people look it up or know about it or seeking it and I, again, I appreciate you talking about that. But my question to you is, did you have an opportunity to meet him? No, I never met him, but I met his daughter. Oh, he was wow. past he, I was too young. I was born in 56. But my father knew him 
And one of the Tuskegee, James Shepard, who was the crew chief for the 100 Pursuit Squadron, he lived down the street from him, but he never knew that he was famous. But I did meet James Shepard, and James Shepard said, Chauncey, you know, we heard about him, and there was a rumor in the neighborhood that there was this black pilot from France, but we never believed it. Hmm. What's your favorite story so that, that, that you that's, that's why that, that, Yeah, that's why I say race doesn't have a lot to do with the lack of knowledge, no. because he was black, and he, wouldn't believe, he couldn't believe it because he was black. And he couldn't believe another black man was a pilot in France and a hero and received the Croix, the, the Croix Guillard, the highest award that France gives you for bravery. And so now, of course, we know that to be true. And if we keep digging and digging in our history, there will be many other Eugene Bullards out there that just haven't been recognized. That's why I'm very conscious as a historian that I never say he's the first, he's the only. To the best of my knowledge, he is, and that's the way I do it. Because there's always going to be a correction in history, unless you're God, you don't know every single thing that happened anyway. There you go. And and what gets Mark and I, Amen. as you were talking about this, was he's this hero in France, and he comes back and he's working as an elevator operator right. in Rockefeller Center. Yeah. That's it's what an insult, and what an and honor also, for President De Gaulle to come over and lay a wreath on oh, his grave. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. And may I also add that America later on gave him an honorary lieutenant bar. Come on now. But I have to go back and tell you one more thing that's poetic about Eugene Bullard. Eugene Bullard had a request at his death that he would be buried in his uniform with the French, and on his tombstone it would say, I had two lovers, America, my mother, and France, my girlfriend. And that's what's on his tombstone. Wow. And also on his plane it says, on one side, a black swallow of death, and on the other side it says, all blood runs red, meaning inside we are all the same. Absolutely. Gosh. Absolutely. This is wonderful. You just why I like this guy, Mark. <laughs> you that's I, the only I, reason. I really like you. You you speak it and you are very articulate. You're so knowledgeable about it. Yeah. And that's the thing. What you said, it's chapter three, because that's all we've ever heard about is, oh, yeah. is Tuskegee Airmen. We did yeah. never heard about chapter one or chapter two or the prologue. Right. And I love what you're doing here. What's your favorite story about your dad? I guess my favorite story about my dad is he was a parachute jumper. He was the only parachute shooter for the National Airmen Association of America. And they were barnstormers at that time. So he used to walk the wings. He'd have a bag of flowers stuffed under his armpits. He'd be wearing two parachutes, one on his chest and one on his butt. And so they would go up 5,000 feet normally, 3,000 feet to jump. They had a race, and him and Sid Sinclair, who raced him, they had a race to see who would land from jumping out of the airplane first. So they went up 10,000 feet. And my father jumped out, and then so many thousand feet, he released that parachute. So the audience said, oh, my God, he's going to kill himself. They didn't know he had a seat parachute. And 800 feet off the ground, he snapped that other parachute, and he paralyzed himself for about two weeks, and he came out of it. But that was about the, that was about the most exciting, crazy story what? that I heard of my father. My father was a true definition of a daredevil. If you gave him a dare, he would be the devil. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. wow. Yeah, I would agree. That's crazy. That's unbelievable. <laughs> and, and then you have this grandmother who is a Harlem Renaissance poet, and, and she and your grandfather entertained such people as James Weldon Johnson and Langston Hughes and W.E.B. Du Bois and Martin Luther King. Oh, my. In Lynchburg, and she lived in Lynchburg and loved her garden uh-huh. and wrote poetry, but never really was in Harlem, correct? No, never was in Harlem, because the Harlem Renaissance writers came from all over the United States. One came from Missouri, and so it was just, it was founded 
because of New York and Harlem. So people like W.E. Du Bois and James Weldon Johnson, where they founded in 1909, the NAACP, it was all done in Harlem, New York. Though Harlem was just the name of the Renaissance writers, they were also known as the New Negro after Reconstruction. See, those so-called African-Americans realized in order to fight racism, you have to do it with intelligence because racism represents ignorance. And in order to overcome ignorance, you don't become ignorant, you become intelligent. And you use that to try to teach people to lift them out of the rut of negative into the ore of togetherness, which would be intelligence or integration. You're refreshing. (laughs) We need him to say this every day. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. We're talking about his grandmother, whose name is Ann Spencer. And do you remember visiting your grandmother? I do. I do. We made, I lived in San Bernardino, California at the time from 1956. So my father was branded a communist under the MacArthur era because he wouldn't drag his feet on integration. He was in charge of the civilian side of the personnel at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And, and he was known as, a, at that time, a hearing officer, a race relations officer. Now we would call it human resources. And he was assigned uh, to go to all the bases all over the United States. And he traveled on the colonel status to listen to grievances and charges of just racism, unfairness, whether it be race or it be gender or it be pay scales that one group is being paid less than the other, but both are doing equally the same job, is to my father's being there. He played a very, very important role in there. My grandmother, Ann Spencer, was a poet of the Harlem Renaissance, and her image in May of 2020 was put on as a representative of 100 years of the Harlem Renaissance writers so her image, Ann Spencer's image, is the United States Postal Stamp, a forever stamp. If you Google it, you'll see that. But during the coronavirus, we weren't able to take the full celebration, which would have been in New York. But due to coronavirus, all of that was put on hold, which we all know. What? This will sound like a really trite question. Do you feel weight being a descendant of Ann Spencer or of Chauncey Spencer, because we've interviewed Dred Scott's, Dred and Harriet Scott's great-great-great-granddaughter. We've interviewed Frederick Douglass's great-great-great-grandson, who's also Booker T. Washington's great-great-grandson. Mm-hmm. And they each mm-hmm. have this, what I would call, their life is in front of them. It's already laid out for them. They must carry on. Do you feel a weight or a, a great responsibility? Obligation. Obligation. I feel, I, feel an, I feel an advantage to the ordinary person because of the historical connection and how it touches each and every one of us, no matter where we come from, that it's been an advantage to me that you compliment with my artistic conversation and how the stories, and these are because of the training and the surroundings that were around that I'm able to tell the story and put the audience right in our stories, which makes you a good good speaker. And that's because of the people that I came from. So mine is not a weight. Mine's an advantage. And really the reason that I do this is because of the advantages that I have that a lot of people don't have that I believe that it belongs to each and every other American. And in order to start your story, would we'll then engage them in their story. So that's how I feel about it. Wow. I hope... There's a way to carry on your mission here for generations to come. That's kind of what I worry about, that 
Um, well, that's my goal. That's why I chose the schools and the curriculum. Mm-hmm. Once we get it into the schools and the curriculum, it'll be a standard. Right. And as I say, when I was in third grade, I learned about George Washington, mm-hmm. but I didn't learn a lot about Booker T. Washington. No. So when you put them in there together, you know about Amelia Earhart, but you don't know a lot of Bessie Coleman. Right. But if you put it in there, I don't think we can. Uh, there's an old saying, no disrespect to people, mm-hmm. but it's tough to, to, to teach an old dog new tricks. Mm-hmm. But it's easy to teach a new dog real tricks. And so I use that as an education. Forgive me for that example. No, that's not good. Dogs. No, that's but, but that's the way I analogy it works right now. And because of that, then we can take a better ourselves as a people. And we have to depend on our young generation to do that because a lot of us are stuck on old and still fighting the Civil War. And the Civil War is over, but the civilness of people is not. And we need those young people to know why it's important to know the past and in order to go to the future. And there is an old saying that's true. If you don't know your past, you're bound to repeat it. Wow. What a great place to end. I was going to ask you for a closing comment, but that's a perfect closing comment, Chauncey. Well, can I give you a, can I give you a closing comment that I have written down for you? Oh, Absolutely. Please. Okay, and here we go. Let me get my glasses on. <laughs> these, are the four things, these are the four things that I think that are very important. We can learn much about how to improve our society and ourselves by studying the life of men and women of color in aviation and aerospace in America. Number one, we must seek out and embrace those who can inspire us. Number two, we must seize and take advantage of the opportunities when they come our way. Number three, we must work effectively with others to accomplish our dreams. And finally, number four, we must have the courage to take risks and make sacrifices for the ideas that we believe in. Thank you. I want to thank you for your time, sir, and your mission and the dedication that you do to honor your father and all of the aviators who went before him and all the people who laid the groundwork for your grandmother and grandfather who instituted and gave your father a solid background and a life in which he could build upon. We're all standing upon the things that both your grandparents and your your father have done, and I I appreciate that very much. I want you to always feel welcome here in St. Louis. You have a place to stay, and we will will take you in and would love to have you come to the St. Louis area, and we'll promote uh, what you're doing here within within the region. I I just want to add we are— we're we're so i just want to add we're so grateful for what you're doing we really are very grateful for what you're doing thank you may i also add that uh on our plans is to come to the truman library in independence missouri and we'll definitely keep you in the loop and give you the heads up because that's one place that trailer belongs the reason i took it to uh moton field and to tuskegee army airfield is because that's where the tuskegee airmen got their baby steps from and then at the museum there on the Truman Library, the Detroit chapter back in the early 1970s honored Truman. And there are pictures in there with my father in that museum. And I think anywhere that he put his footprint is where that trailer belongs. So definitely Missouri is going to be one of those places. That's great. We look forward to that time. And we'd even come up there and do a virtual show with you on that. That would be wonderful. Please, please do. And, and may I say one more thing? Absolutely. Your email went to spam. So... Will you send me an email so I'll have your real contact? I have Arnold's phone number, but if you do that, then what I'm going to do is forward this information, and if I can get the link on this interview, that would be wonderful, so I can give it to our corporate office, and then they can schedule, 
and reach out to you so we can put on an event because the only way we operate is through donations and through a, a, a platform like yours would definitely help us to get more of an audience to have an opportunity for donations for us to continue our mission. I will do that, Chauncey. And don't forget, folks, it's ces-ii.com. Chauncey Spencer, thanks for coming on St. Louis in Tune. We greatly appreciate it, sir. Thank you, guys, and have a wonderful weekend. You too. Thank you, Chauncey. Fantastic. We appreciate you listening to this episode of St. Louis in Tune. Take time to look at the show notes on the website for everything that was mentioned on this episode. St. Louis in Tune is produced in cooperation with KWRH 92.9 FM and Motif Media Group. For St. Louis in Tune, I'm Arnold Stricker.